Welcome to the Valley Avon Podcast, a weekly podcast provided by Valley Community Baptist Church, located in Avon, Connecticut. This week, we'll hear from Pastor Joe Funderburg as he explores our eternal destiny and our choice regarding the foundation of our lives in his sermon titled, Building Our Lives Wisely. Let's listen now. So a couple of weeks ago, I was on my phone and Google brought up an article about lions and it kind of led me down a rabbit hole. And uh, so I've been reading about lions the last couple of weeks and I've learned some things that I didn't know. I didn't realize that lions are some of the most social creatures in the animal world. And not only that, but they're, uh, they communicate very well, and they communicate uh, through a series of different types of sounds. They purr, of course, they're big cats. They snarl. I didn't know this, but lions actually hiss. Uh, but, but of course, probably of all the ways that they communicate, the, it is the loud roar of the lion that is probably most legendary. A a lion's roar, I learned, is so powerful that it can be as loud as 114 decibels, and you can actually hear it up to five miles away. Those who have lived around lions will tell you that one of the most terrifying sounds is to hear the roar of a lion in the middle of the night. So I came across this article about why do lions roar? A couple of those you might figure out on your own. They roar because they are warning off other competitors. So the male lions, one of their primary jobs really is to protect their territory. And so they will let out a a loud roar in in order to tell those that are coming around, don't come in our territory. They also roar in order to sort of strut their stuff, to show off, in other words, right? They roar to say, here is how healthy I am, Here's how strong I am, and so it's sort of showing off. And so because of that, you also hear a lot of roaring during mating season when they're strutting their stuff. But this is what I didn't know. Lions also roar as a warning, not to possible enemies or to those who are encroaching on their territory, but lions will roar actually for the other lions in the pride. There can be in a pride up to 15 to to 20 lions, a couple of males, and of course many females, and then cubs. And they like to do a lot of traveling and movement and activity at night. And so they can see really well at night, but the lion's roar in the middle of the night is not for hunting. It's actually to communicate to the other lions when they begin to wander off as they're traveling from the pride. It's a warning to those who are on the inside. Jesus closes the Sermon on the Mount with a loud roar. And he is signaling to those who already consider themselves to be a part of the pride. But as he goes on to explain, they think that they're a part of the kingdom of God, but in truth, in actuality, they are not. It is a loud and terrifying Warning, scholars count these words as some of the most difficult and terrifying in the entire New Testament. The implication of what Jesus has to tell us here is unnerving. Not so much for those on the outside, but especially for those who consider themselves on the inside of God's kingdom. 
Let's look again at verse 21. Here's what Jesus says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. So as we close this teaching series, I, I want to walk us through these words of warning. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, last week, Rob sort of walked us through uh, when, when Jesus is teaching about false prophets. And, and he talked about false prophets, and then Jesus talks about uh, the fruit. You'll know them by their fruit. And as I was listening to that message, I typically think of false uh, prophets and teachers as, as folks out there, but I, I couldn't help but through the words of Jesus turn inward and say, well, what about the fruit of my life? And with, with the way that I am living, the fruit of my life, am, am I a false prophet, a false teacher? He sort of continues that forward today in this passage, talking from false prophets now, and what he's talking about here is false disciples. And he goes on here in, in the next several verses to sort of give us a couple of false things about false disciples. The first thing that he mentions is a false profession, right? It, it is the words, Lord, Lord. Now that double title is significant. It's important. It indicates an enthusiastic and intimate language for God. This is the voice of someone who, who says, I know who you are, Lord, Lord. It's an emphatic profession of faith. So you see, Jesus is not speaking here to those on the outside or those who are way far from God or atheists or agnostics or pagans or, or, or those people who have little to no desire for the things of God. That's not who Jesus is addressing. It's a loud warning to those who already consider themselves a part of the pride, but are actually strangers to him. He's speaking even and especially to the most religious among them, but their religion has not led to any sort of real intimacy and connection with God. What we need to understand about intimacy and relationship with God is that intimacy comes on his terms, not ours. It comes on his terms, right? Th this truth right here doesn't, doesn't really ring true to many in our culture because intimacy only comes on our terms, right? These words can be very offensive, right? They violate our warped sense of individual identity and self-determination. No, I'm the one. I'm the one that determines who I associate with, who I'm friends with, who I am intimate with. I determine that and no one else not according to what God says here about relationship with him. You cannot simply declare intimacy with God and have it be so. It goes so much more deeper than that, and it is completely on the conditions that he sets. So if that stark warning isn't enough, he continues on in verse 22. He says, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, there's the double title again, that intimacy. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
Let's zero, zero in on that word many today. As I read that the last couple of weeks, it just continued to, to kick me in the stomach, right? Many. Jesus isn't saying here that, oh, there'll be a few in that day. When judgment day rolls around, there'll be, there'll be a few out there who they thought they knew me, they did many things in my name, but really I did not know them. They depart, that to depart from me, there's a few of them. No, that's not what he says. He doesn't even say there'll be some who on that day will say, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, I never knew you. He doesn't say some. Let the weight of that word sort of sink into your, your mind and your heart this morning. He says it will be many. Notice that these many are doing substantial works. In fact, there's nothing wrong with the work that they're doing. It's, it's good work. They are proclaiming and preaching and doing mighty deeds in the name of God. There's nothing wrong with, with the works. They are good works. But listen, a false profession will lead to false and empty work not because it's not good, but they are done in the name of Jesus, but disconnected from relationship and intimacy with Jesus. So listen, it is possible to do very good things, even in the name of God, apart from truly knowing God. This really ought to disabuse us of the idea that we can be saved by our works. If that were true, when Jesus speaks of the many who do all of these great things, when he speaks of the many, they definitely would be in the kingdom of God. He says that they are not in. So it is not based on our good works. We cannot earn our way into heaven. These are false disciples. The idea of false disciples really shouldn't surprise us. This has been true from the beginning. And there are many different examples in the New Testament. Let me just give you a few of them. You remember the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, where he comes up to Jesus and, and he's excited, right? And, and, and in this conversation, Jesus talks about, well, do you remember, and you remember the commandments and, and the rich young ruler said, yes, I've kept all of these things. He is excited. He, he believes that he is in, he, has, he knows who God is and he's living for God. And yet Jesus says, well, you don't understand. First of all, you don't, not as good as you think you are. He commands him to do something he's unwilling to do, and then he walks away. The rich young ruler thought he was a good person, and that was enough. How many people do you know who believe that today? How many people in the church believe that? Well, the good outweighs the bad. If I'm, if I'm a good person, if I try to do good things, then, then that's, that's enough to be in the kingdom of heaven. It's not. And then, of course, we could... We could talk about the Pharisees. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus said that the Pharisees were lost, not because they didn't do good things, that they're lost because they were self-righteous without any genuine repentance. They never saw their need to repent of their sin before a holy God, and so they are lost. And though they think they are in the kingdom of heaven. Paul spoke of his countrymen in Romans chapter 10. He said that they were they were zealous. That means they were excited about the things of God. They were, they in their own minds, they were all in. I'm excited about living for God. And yet he says, without any real knowledge of who he is. 
There are false gospels being proclaimed today in our culture where people are zealous for the things of God, but they have an incomplete picture and not a biblical picture of who God is and what it means to be in relationship with him. And so because of a false gospel or a partial gospel, they are kept in darkness. Paul talks to Titus in Titus chapter 1 about the Cretans, where he says that they are people who have corrupted minds and consciences, but they claim to know God, but their actions actually deny him. So not like the many here, what Jesus talks about where they're doing good works. These are folks who are doing bad things, but their minds are so corrupted where they say, I'm doing the work of God and we know God. There are people like that today. Their minds and their hearts are corrupted. Their conscience is corrupted. In Acts chapter 8, we're, we're told of a man named Simon the Magician. As, as uh, the, the book of Acts begins to lay out, and, and you see the power of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit to regenerate the heart and do the deep work of salvation and, and a repentance as people cry out to God and receive Jesus Christ as Savior. The Holy Spirit begins that work of sanctification in their lives. And in the book of Acts, we see mighty things happening. Well, Simon notices this and he sees the work of the Holy Spirit. And he says, I want to be in on that. And yet it is for selfish reasons. And his conversion, if you will, was only superficial. It was all about him. So listen, false disciples have existed from the beginning. They exist today. So how can we evaluate the le legitimacy then of our own discipleship? Well, maybe it is that we need to consider asking ourselves some different questions. R.C. Sproul and others have commented on these words of warning about false profession with a clarifying question. And I love this question. It sort of turns our language on its, on its head. Normally we ask the question of ourselves and others, do, do you know Jesus, right? If you were to die tonight, do, do you have a relation? Do you know Jesus? And, and the clarifying question here really is, is, is turning that on its head to say it's not so much about whether I know Jesus, it's about whether Jesus knows me. And it sounds strange to our ears, doesn't it? Does Jesus know you? We could say, well, of course he knows me. It's obvious he's God. But clearly Jesus in these words, he's driving here toward an understanding of a lack of genuine relationship. Of course he knows us. But how could it be then that someone genuinely thinks that they know Jesus only then to have Jesus look at them and say, I do not know you? How does that happen? I think it happens when we come to Jesus halfway. There are some who accept Jesus as Savior, but they never really get around to accepting him as Lord. These are people who are happy to hear of the part of the gospel where Jesus' grace and forgiveness is freely available. Yes, I hear that. Yes, I want that. Please, Jesus, forgive me. And they cry out to Jesus Jesus, forgive me of my sins, but they do that without any sort of the sense of requirements or sacrifices of what it means to actually begin to follow Jesus. Bill Hull is a, a pastor, a leader, a writer who's thought deeply about the modern church in the last 20 to 30 years, and he explains that we 
even unintentionally in the evangelical world at times can can preach some incomplete or even false gospel, sometimes uh, obviously not even knowing that we're doing it. He said, we teach people to, to encourage people to make a profession of faith, and that's a good thing, right? We, we need the salvation of Jesus, save me from my sin. We teach that, and we encourage that, but then what we maybe unintentionally do is that we make the ongoing process of sanctification and discipleship. We make it optional. Yeah, come to faith in Jesus, say a prayer, and you are saved. Uh, you know, about that discipleship thing. Yeah, here's some offerings, but that's sort of just optional. You can opt in on that. And it's a, an incomplete gospel message. It's a forgiveness-only gospel. So some accept Jesus as Savior, but never really get around accepting Him as Lord. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he specifically writes to the Thessalonians to talk about the will of God, the same language Jesus uses here. And you know what he says the will of God is? He says, listen, you've come to faith in Christ, you've made a profession, but you need to continue allowing the work of the Holy Spirit to sanctify you and to change you. And that is an ongoing work, and we encourage you to that work more and more. He says the will of God in 1 Thessalonians 4, the will of God is your sanctification, the process of working out your salvation with fear and trembling of allowing the Holy Spirit to continue to change you from within. There are others who accept Jesus as Lord, but not as Savior. These are folks who are convinced that they need to try to figure out how to do the right things. They, they want to live a good life. They, they recognize good in Jesus' teaching. And so these are folks that, that attend church. They, they want to help their neighbors and their friends. They want to they be involved in local missions. They want to serve their community. They want to give to the church. They want to give to good causes. They are very religious people. But underneath it all, they've never truly repented. Instead of relying on the grace of Jesus Christ to, to forgive and to cleanse them from their sin, they end up substituting all the activity of religion and they end up trusting that to save them. You hear that again in the words of, of the many Jesus talks about here. Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do mighty acts in your name? In other words, they said, we did all the right things that we knew how to do. How is it that we could not be in the kingdom of, of heaven? How is it that we could not be saved? There is no halfway with Jesus. It requires a full and, com and complete submission to him as Savior and Lord. You see, a genuine profession of faith says to Jesus, I'm all in. I love the story of Sherry Harney in 2016. This young mother posted a story of what happened to her on her 34th birthday. She, she got up early in the morning, as was her custom and habit, to read the Bible. And she said not long after she started reading, she, she saw her, her little boy, five-year-old boy Josh, run down the stairs excitedly. And he, he turned around the corner and headed back toward where her bedroom was. You see, Josh knew that in mom's closet, she had uh, a box of cards for all different kinds of occasions. And so he was back there for several minutes, and then all of a sudden he came 
out into the living room and he walked in front of his mom with a card in one hand and with his favorite school pencil box in the other. So he handed her the card first. She opened it up and it was a sweet, sweet little card and had a sweet little message. It's meant to say happy birthday, mom, but he got his M's and his W's mixed up. So it said happy birthday, wow, right? She said, oh, thank you so much, buddy, for the, for the card. She then turned her attention to, to the box. She opened the box up, and inside were four different gifts. The first she saw was Josh's favorite matchbox car. She, she knew it was his favorite because she watched him play, and that was always the one that was in the lead. So she, he gave her his, his favorite little car. The second gift was all the money that little Josh had to his name, a quarter. The third gift she recognized uh, when they would take trips traveling was one of those little games with the, the, the little uh, metal, you know, BB in it, you know, to, to, to play the little game on the road. And so that was his favorite game he liked to play, and that was in there. Now, the, the fourth gift she didn't quite make a connection to. So she, she reached into the box, and she, she pulled it out. She said, thank you, buddy, for these gifts. But, and she, she held up a, a pair of plastic handcuffs in front of him. She said, but, buddy, what is this gift for? Well, he got, he got all reserved and, and kind of shy, and then finally he kind of looked up at his mom, and he says, well, mom, I, I, I had an idea since it's your birthday. He said, here was my idea. I thought maybe, maybe you could take one of the cuffs and you could put, put it on my wrist, and then maybe you'd take the other and you could put it on your wrist. And that way we could spend the whole day together. I love that story. I love that image and that picture. Even for ourselves, as children of God, as we, as we cry out and call upon the name of God, listen, a genuine profession of faith says, put the cuffs on me, I am all in. No matter if, if I fully understand you or I'm still in the dark about things or no matter if I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm living this out or struggling to live this out or, or trying to figure out what is grace and what does it mean to, to work out my salvation, no matter if circumstances look the way that I want them to or they don't look the way that I want them to, Lord Jesus, I cry out to you and I am all in for the rest of my life no matter what. That's what Jesus is driving at here. How can we know if we've made that sort of profession of faith, if we've truly surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ? Well, thankfully, the Apostle Paul provides that answer. In Romans chapter 8, verse 16, he says that the Spirit of God Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. God doesn't want to leave that open or confused in any way. God invites us to, to cry out to Him, to appeal to Him. And He says, as we do that day in and day out, the Holy Spirit will communicate to us whether or not we are children of God. So let me ask you, what is the Spirit of God saying to you? You see, we can fool ourselves we can fool others. But God knows. 
He looks deep into the heart of every one of us and he knows whether there's, there's genuine repentance and faith and relationship with him or whether that's missing. Let's close here then and look at finally a second false thing, a false foundation. So in verse 24 through 27, Jesus drives this home with a powerful illustration. And here's what he says. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. As I read this story again and again the past couple of weeks, I kept, my mind kept going back to one of my favorite childhood stories, The Three Little Pigs. So I did some reading. The earliest published version of this story appeared in England in 1853. And the interesting thing is that there were some different uh, parts of the story that we wouldn't recognize. Instead of three little pigs, it was three pixies. And the names of the pixies were interesting. The three little pixies were Brownie, Whitey, and Blackie. And so as you go through the story, the, the third little pig, Blackie, he's the smart one, He's the clever one, and so he builds his house, not of bricks like we know the story. He actually builds a house of iron. And instead of a big bad wolf, it's actually a cunning fox that's trying to get to the the pixies. So I found that really interesting. I'd never heard that before. There actually are several different versions of this story, but all of them basically have the same moral lesson. It's the third pixie or piggy, right, that took time to build his house out of stronger material. He built something that would last. So the story really condemns laziness, and it's meant to reward those who are most industrious and most hardworking. And the one thing that I know about us, and we like to, to relate and connect with stories that, that really reward our own virtues, meaning that, boy, maybe I'm not there yet. Maybe I'm not as hardworking or as industrious as I want to be, but, but I can work that out. I can figure that out. I can gain intelligence. I can think through uh, the, the different things I need to do, and I can build something on my own that will last, and I can be industrious. I can be clever. I can be smart. We like stories like that. The story that Jesus tells here to close is not pleasing to us at all, right? There are two builders, there are two houses, but the focus of the story is not on the character or the smarts of the builder, it's not the choice of the quality of the building materials, it's it's not really about what they build, the focus of the story is all about what? Location. The clarifying question here then is not so much about what, what I'm building in my life, the clarifying question is, where am I building? Jesus says that if we want a life that amounts to anything, if we want a life in the kingdom of heaven, a life that will actually stand the test of time, then we have to build it on the rock. We have to locate it directly on him. 
And I realize of myself that, that we spend so much time in consideration about what kind of life we're building. How can I improve myself? How can I build a better life for myself, for my, my wife, for my family? How can I achieve greater goals? How can I do greater things, right? Those aren't bad questions, but usually it ends up being more about me than it is about Jesus. And so what Jesus really is doing, he's drawing our attention to the, to the one thing that matters. Where am I building and what is the foundation? And so at the end of the day, it could be a dilapidated sort of trailer house or it could be a mansion. That's not the point. The foundation is the only thing that matters. And how humbling is that? Do I know Jesus? No, rather, does Jesus know me? What kind of life am I building? No, actually, where? Am I building? Where am I locating my life? Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Valley Avon podcast. If you would like to hear more, you can subscribe for free on any platform you use. If you would like to visit us in person or would like to submit a prayer request, you can visit us on the web at Avon dot valleycommunity.cc. From all of us here at Valley Community Baptist Church, thank you for coming and have a blessed week.